Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Welcome to GodPod number 70. We have reached our allotted span of three school years and ten, although someone did say they didn't really like us commenting on the number of God pods, so we probably shouldn't. On the other hand, otherwise they all merge into each other, don't they? Exactly. And besides, we're rather proud of having kept going for so long. Who would have thought you could talk theology for 70 God pods? That's quite right. So anyway, today we have uh, the usual three suspects. Now we have Jane. You do. And uh, Michael, Michael Lloyd. Hello. And myself, Graham Tomlin. Uh, but we have a guest today, and we are delighted to welcome uh, the Reverend Dr. Lincoln Harvey. Well, thank you very much. Very good to be here. Uh, Lincoln is um, Lincoln's actually one of our colleagues on the staff at St. Melitus. So it's all fairly incestuous. <laughs> Extremely so. And um, Lincoln, uh, Lincoln teaches... Um, what do you teach, Lincoln? Primarily doctrine, with, along with Mike and... Jane and, and yourself, yeah. doctrine of God, you talk about doctrine God. of creation. You talk um, about God rather Jesus a lot, Christ. don't you? Um, but not as much as I'd like and not as much as I should, but I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I do have other interests. <laughs> <laughs> For <Awesome>. now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So anyway, um, uh, it's great to have Lincoln with us. And uh, as always, we have a number of really interesting questions that have come in from various people. So we're going to start off with one from the uh, fantastically named Roger Luther. Um, Roger, we love your name. We think it's fantastic. Uh, well, at least I do, anyway. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Graham is a great Luther scholar and should read his books on him. He should, exactly. Or even Luther's. <laughs> Luther's on my, on me. Well, no, he's strangely silent on that. Yeah, Talking was. of which, side to step this a little bit, but um, I discovered a book by Johnny Cash. You know, he's written a book on St Paul, a novel. It's called The Man in, in White. Yeah. Oh. Of course, Johnny Cash was The Man in Black, but he's written yeah. a book on St. Paul. Is it any good? And it did cross my mind that only one thing could be slightly more interesting, which would be St. Paul writing a book on Johnny Cash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Man in Black, yeah. the, the man, sequel. The Man in Black, The Man in... Um, the Man in White. Man in White is called, yeah, yeah paperback. It's, a, mm. no, it's quite good. Because a lot of Johnny Cash's songs do have uh, some very interesting theology in them. Uh, yeah. My yeah. teenager is a great Johnny Cash fan. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's fantastic, yeah. yeah. A great conversion experience, a bit like St. Paul. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of good and a lot and of bad from Johnny Cash. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Shame we can't get him on Godpod, really. Well, I'm not sure that we could handle him, but there we go. <laughs> Either <laughs> St. Paul or Johnny Cash. Yes. <laughs> Both a little bit dead. But, um Anyway, uh, anyway, back to, back to where we were from Roger's question, which is a very good one, which says this. Um, is it fair to thank God when things go well in answer to prayer, but then not to blame him when they don't? How can we give God credit when someone is healed, but then don't blame God when they're not? It all seems rather unbalanced, which is quite a good little question, mm. really. It's a very good question. Um, because that's the way we do things in the Christian world. We don't tend to shout at God when he gets things wrong or when he seems to get things wrong from our perspective. So Speak why don't we? yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, anyone want to pitch in on this one? I, I mean, I do think it says quite a lot about uh, about the questioner that that he does his, uh, and and his Christian formation, that he's obviously been taught to be thankful, which is, and thankfulness is a good quality in itself. But actually, a lot of people I've met are, are very willing to blame God for everything. 
and never blame human beings for anything. It's, if something goes wrong, it's always God's fault and are actually very willing to, um, to think it's entirely their due when things go well and not thank God for it. So um, I, I think Roger is painting a, a picture of a, a healthy Christian community with his question. Mm. But what we have to do is un- unpick why it is the logic of doing the one, thanking him for when yeah. things go well, and uh, the logic of n- not blaming him when things go badly. And I think, unfortunately, the kind of assumption behind um, that tendency to blame God when things go badly is that he, he always gets his way. Uh, and therefore we thank him when things go right and we blame him when things goes, go, goes wrong. Things go wrong. But, but God doesn't always get his way. <clears throat> we know that from sin. I know this is something I bang on about a bit. So if you've heard me about it before, I apologize. But but there aren't many knockdown arguments in theology. But I think here's one. Um God doesn't get his own way because people sin. We know that he doesn't get his his own way because people sin. Um, So what you have to see is God working for good in every situation, sometimes getting it in the short term, sometimes not getting it in the short term. Um, And therefore we thank him for what he has done to work well, to work good, to work blessing, to work healing, to work glory. Um, And we assume... I believe, believe rightly that somebody else is responsible or something else is responsible for when that doesn't happen. It's not that God isn't working in that situation for good and for glory and for healing and for grace. It's just that something else has got in the way. Yeah, I, I'd be careful, I think, about talking about not God not getting his way because I think the gospel is that God does get his way, that God's faithful to his way in Jesus Christ. And if the story had ended on Good Friday, then we could probably all sit here one way or another and say God doesn't get his way. But the resurrection suggests that God does get his way, and that might really point us towards the future and the way in which thanksgiving is is our future being. It's what we're becoming, creatures of thanksgiving. And the times of lament have a slightly different quality to them, a different way of being. They're not... Um, written into eternity. Now, it's the problem with evil and suffering, all those things, is do we blame God? Well, the church doesn't, on the whole, blame God for their origin. Uh-huh. So the mystery of the origin of evil is is a great conundrum, which you wrestle with, Mike, um, <laughs> I regularly. Do. I do. Um, internally and externally. <laughs> um, but perhaps a greater mystery is the persistence of evil. Not that it turned up, but that God somehow allows it to persist. Oh. And we seem to be caught up in this sort of time that's hardly not a time. And this strange forward movement towards um, becoming um, creatures of thanksgiving in Christ. And, sorry, I, I mean, I think it, it is God letting things be other, isn't it? The reason evil persists is because God lets things be what they choose to be rather than imposing what he wants them to be. <clears throat> At least, again, in the short term, I take your point about the ultimate victory of God. Um, but in the meantime, things happen that he doesn't want to happen. People make choices he doesn't want them to make. Uh, and and presumably, I'm suggesting he does that um, in order to let them become freely the people they want to be rather than just making them robot robotic. 
the space for them to be who who they a, a character they forge in relationship with others and with him mm. i mean the question of the the sort of the being of of evil and suffering is is difficult tricky yep. slippery yep. um but certainly would question whether suffering and being exists in the same way as all those good things that we have endlessly in Jesus Christ. And that yep. one of the paradoxes, as Bart teaches us so well, is um, precisely that the full evil comes to its closest to its existence, to actually being precisely at the moment in which it's vanquished on the cross. That it only enters into relationship with God, as it were, at the point he overcomes it. And therefore all the not to say that our suffering and and evil isn't real, it's not illusory, mm. yet its reality is not that of the created good for which we give thanks and praise now and forever. I, I entirely agree with that. And, and Augustine's great strength of his whole mm. stuff on evil is that um, goodness is more real mm. than, than evil or suffering. Well, that evil is not real not, at all. Yeah, evil is, not, is even an that. absence of good. Yes, but... In its absenceness, is it absenceness? Yep. It is an evil, and it it does impinge, and it does oppress, yep. and it, it it is not what God would have wanted. He wouldn't have wanted there to be an absence of good where there should be good. Yep. So it is still a problem, and it's a problem that still impinges upon us. I agree, it is. It, it comes closest to reality as it is vanquished, uh, but nevertheless, the quasi reality that it has. Is, is a destructive one and one that um, God did not design us to suffer. But to, to learn from, um, from Barth and all this, the, the way in which it is the impossible possibility that somehow um, the nothingness or, or, of, of evil, the, the, the non-being of it, exists as a no within God's yes. So when God creates and decides to uh, elect the creature to share his life in Jesus Christ... He elects and determines a particular form, you know, a featherless biped sat, situated in a, on a planet in a cosmos with stars, moon, and, and that in that decision, which is as determined and takes a particular form, God somehow says no to all the other possibilities of the ways of God with the creature. And God in Jesus Christ decides to be merciful and elect us. And therefore, all the suffering and the evil is almost the the sort of fringe of God's good decision. Okay, and no yes. I, I have slight problems with that because it seems to be almost Ooh. a kind of Plotinus-like, uh, you know, the, the act of creation goodness goes so far and then it kind of goes into non-being, into evil, and, and, and it, it's almost a fault of the creation that that, that happens, whereas I think it's uh, of the act of creation that it happens, whereas I think it's always the, the fault of a, crea a, cr a creature rather than the fault of either the creator or the act of creation. One of the... Um, uh, yes, come in, come in between us quickly, <laughs> Graham. <laughs> I'll do my best to keep you apart. <laughs> um, I mean, one of the interesting factors, I guess, is in the scriptures, you do actually get writers blaming God for things going wrong. And the Psalms are full of voices of faithful people. Um saying you know god why have you allowed this to happen and particularly you know the exile why does why has god allowed these things to happen israel to be overcome the temple to be broken down and so on and which which testifies to some kind of um 
um, recognition that somehow this is still within God's maybe permissive will over against his active will that somehow is still within his overall design for the world um, so I guess I think that's interesting on two grounds one because um, it does you know, in answer to Roger's original question there is still scope for Christians to to, to complain to God and to to to, to moan at times and, and, and to, to address our frustration to God rather than any, and anywhere else which actually sort of pastorally and spiritually is a healthy thing to do yes um, it embraces that uh, but on the other ground also it, it seems to indicate um, some kind of recognition that this is still can be woven into God's overall purpose for the world yes and, and so, so. The, the, the complaining to god i mean it can be healthy if it's not childish if it's not us saying to god fix this now mm. um i mean the the, the thing about the, the the people complaining to god about the exile is is that do you, you get this get this massive flowering of the prophetic literature and so on of people trying to work out why it happened and it did come back to yep. a, a cre- creaturely breaking of the relationships with God um, is, is the great theological um, backdrop to, yep. to, to these yep. questions. So, so if it's us being prepared to be um, adults in a, in a relationship with God where we, we do um, take uh, issue with God about things that we don't understand and go on working with him about them as Job Mm. Does and in a sense to wrestle with the question. Yes. That's kind of what they're doing. Yeah. The psalmist that they're saying, yeah. you know, well, why has this happened? Why has God allowed it to happen? And then the ongoing fruit of that, as you say, is all that prophetic literature, which is trying to work out: is it was it because we sinned, Israel sinned, mm. was it because you know for whatever reason? So that ongoing theological wrestling with the problem of evil seems to be part of the answer to to. So, yeah, so that what we so long as what we're not recommending a, a sort of theology that thinks that God is like the great slot machine and ought to be doing what we want and therefore if we put our money in and what we want hasn't come out we complain to god i mean that so it's definitely not that kind of um, a theological system we recommend and more basic than that as long as we keep that distinction that the church was keen to establish between creation and theodicy yes so unlike other rival religions um in the dawn of the church we we didn't ascribe the problems of suffering to the um, quality of the material that the creator no, had to exactly. use or something. You know, that the, the, the origin of evil is not to do with the act of creation and, and, our, and our creator. And that's slightly my problem with the Bartian thing. It almost looks as if he's going back in that direction, that, that there's a problem with the act of creation, that it necessarily produces this stuff around the fringes. But I suppose as a impossible possibility to use Bart's language as the absurdity of, of evil and the, the fact that it doesn't share in the true, the good and the beautiful, mm-hmm. the fact that it's somehow um, that radical sort of nothingness um, the church hasn't tried to explain it so we yep. never yep. stand before yes. God um, you know, as we distinguish between our confession and our intercession, what needs saying sorry for and where we need to say to God, you know, establish your justice. Mm. Um, we never stand for God and say, but the way you've set things up is yeah. is wrong because actually all of this is deeply, deeply yeah. and, and puzzling, think- mysterious, <coughs> absurd. But the church doesn't explain evil, but it tells stories of faithfulness. Mm. It doesn't, on the whole, lift up stories of lament, though they're there in the scriptures. The church is... is more characterised by telling stories of faithfulness amongst the martyrs 
um, amongst those who have suffered great suffering, not those who have tried to explain or blame God for it, mm. but ones who have remained precisely thankful for Jesus Christ amidst great suffering. And I think we, we must never try to explain evil because that would be to mm. pay it too much respect, to suggest mm. it has a rationality and a place in things <clears throat> that it doesn't have. I, I just want to say one more thing because Graham is anxious <laughs> to move on to the next question. Um, but uh, when Jesus came, he preached the kingdom the rule of God, the reign of God, uh, and, and preached that that was breaking in uh, to world history and world occurrence, which suggests that it wasn't there previously and it wasn't there elsewhere. Here in the ministry of Jesus, God is reigning, um, which means that God is not always getting his way pre prior to that or other, in other places than that. And, and what does it look like when God is reigning, it looks like people being healed. It looks like a storm is being stilled. Mm. It looks like death being undone. That's what the reign of God and the rule of God and the kingdom of God look like. That ultimately is going to triumph. The whole cosmos is going to be brought back into that relationship mm. with God for which it was intended and created. Um, and in the meantime, we groan, we complain, but we trust the goodness of God and we try to reflect that goodness in our own lives and, and mission. Um. And one final thing. <laughs> <laughs> we allow, I, mean, I guess, uh, the final word, do you not? <laughs> the, um, Depends what it is. <laughs> not to question Roger's question, but at least to, um, to raise the possibility that asking about whether something's fair in the relationship between God and the creature is um, sometimes oh. something to be avoided because ultimately, or on one reading, it isn't fair that I'm saved by grace. It isn't fair that a sinner such as me will share and participate in God's eternal life. The, the fairness of the relationship between God and everything else, there isn't a measure that's bigger than God and everything else in which you can say, well, is God treating us fairly? <laughs> I don't oh. know how you, how you do that. Um, I think, yeah, to keep on the front foot with thanksgiving, I mm. think. Good. Happy, happy Mike. The last word? Uh, I, I'll let him have it, <laughs> so to speak. I think there may have to be round <laughs> two at some point. <laughs> yes, this fight will continue. In our, in our <laughs> That's a great, anyway, really good question. So, moving on to an entirely different topic, or is it a different topic? I don't know, I suppose it is. Um, this is one from uh, which came in from um, Washington, USA, from a place called Puyallup. I've never been to Puyallup. Uh, no, not even sure whether that's the right way to pronounce it. But anyway, someone called Tom Shaw. Uh, and Tom asked the question um, that uh, he's quite interested in um, in football or soccer, I think, as he would call it. Oh, so it is still about yeah. suffering then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here we go. Now, every time we talk about football, Jane is very rude. And she's, she's bound to introduce all kind of sarky comments all the way through this question. I'm never rude. <laughs> I can see really it coming. clear. That's right, exactly. Um, take, take a Bartian approach, but football would be not non-being, wouldn't it? It wouldn't really exist. Oh, no. well, I think he's going to disagree <laughs> with that. This side of the table makes it round for being. Yeah, <laughs> Playfulness. So anyway, Tom's question is um, is really about um, it's about football and what he calls the strategy of the beautiful game. Can the philosophy and management of football, uh, soccer, help Christian mentors, mould Christian leaders, uh, and all of that? And um, I suppose I mean just if I can kick off on this one, and then we'll draw good, in good metaphor. Yeah, <laughs> which uh, how do you mean? Kick off on this, this one. Oh, I see you mean. Yeah, 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 I didn't even realise you were being <laughs> witty. <laughs> my, my language is suffused with football terminology, as you can see. But um, I mean, it does seem to me quite a quite a significant New Testament metaphor for 
spiritual life is physical activity. There's a lot of times when the metaphor is used of preparation for the games, you know, the athlete who goes into training, who goes into strict training, the, you know, the word gumnadze, um, which is the word training. It's used in um, 2 Timothy 3.16 for the scriptures. They're useful for training in righteousness. And it's the same word that we get gymnasium from. You know, you get the Hebrews 12 all about, you know, running the race and all of that. In other words, you know, I think a feature of of um, sort of first century Greco-Roman life was the was the kind of common experience of the games. And we're about to have the common? Olympic Games here. In, Did uh, women take part in them? In the games? No, not that common. <laughs> <laughs> but they, well, they knew about them. I don't know, that's a good question. Did women take, take part no, in the I think they games? didn't. Probably no. didn't. But anyway, well, it's still I, there. I, I think they the carried Bible. the wreaths. So. <laughs> <laughs> would, that, would that count? Exactly. <laughs> but I was finding quite interesting that, that, that um, St. Paul and others often use that metaphor as a metaphor for spiritual growth, that there's somehow a parallel between the way in which we develop our physical bodies um, you know, to be prepared for these exertions of the games and also the way in which our spiritual lives develop and the use of certain disciplines in both sides of, uh, of our lives. And um, uh, that aspect of going into training, which is used as a metaphor for the spiritual life, which I think is probably a reminder to us that the spiritual life is not just something that you gain overnight, it's something which is cultivated and worked at and uh, and developed within the context of a strong theology of grace. Um, so I think there are some parallels to be found there between the whole area of of um, physical training and spiritual training. And I've I've long thought that churches might learn quite a bit from um, gyms and physical training centres as to how that happened. Now there are ways in which that metaphor doesn't work. Um, but I think there are ways in which it does work as well. So that's, that's just one observation on that question of, um, of of sport and faith and so on. But Lincoln, you've done quite a lot of thinking in this whole area as well and what the significance of um, sport is in a Christian life and all of that. Relative to Jane, I've done a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> that's not saying a lot. <laughs> the Valley of the Blind. I'm not quite sure how sharp the question is with this, but um, I think there's lots that we can learn from sport, certainly. And I think sport has a very important place within the life of a Sabbath-shaped creature, that what we're doing when we're playing sport, what we learn is that we're not that serious, as um, your husband Rowan um, described it once, Jane. We're not that serious, that sport is sort of a ritualised celebration of our non-seriousness. It's the one part of our life, um, unlike our work, unlike our eating, our drinking, or our sleeping, it doesn't, it's not for anything. It's gratuitous. It doesn't produce anything at the end of the game. Nothing's harvested. There's no product. You simply do it. It's not necessary it's in the way that those other things are. Completely unnecessary. It's not capricious. It's not random. It's, 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 it has its own internal ordering in that it's meaningful. Um, so a game, a sport, is unnecessary yet meaningful, which is precisely why it, it chimes with the very deepest depths of our being as creatures because the church teaches that when God created, he, it wasn't necessary. Nothing forced him to. God was complete in himself. He was that endless 
joyful communion. He was the loving fellowship of three persons in relation. He, he had no deficiency, no, no itch to scratch, no need to produce anything. So in creating us, it's a radically gracious, gratuitous act. Gracious, gratuitous. Um, it's unnecessary. And yet creation has a purpose that it's not capricious, it's not meaningless, it has a purpose, a meaning, which is that loving fellowship and joy of the creature entering into the life of God, into loving communion. And therefore we, each of us, and everything we, we are as, as creatures in this, in this sphere, is unnecessary yet meaningful. So when we play sport, the Christian more than anyone else knows that here we celebrate who we are as creatures of grace. This is the one time we lay aside our works, we lay aside all those necessary things and struggles we must do and simply say we're, we're sort of ludicrous to um, you know, make the pun. Um, we, we just we exist, we're playful deeply within us. I lo- love the bit in, I can't remember, is it one of the Psalms, uh, where it talks about um, God creating Leviathan um, in the ocean to frolic there. Is mm. uh, there to frolic? Is there to to play? To enjoy his her its physicality? Uh, to v- enjoy the environment in which they are set? Um, and there's no again. There's no kind of job to be done agenda there. It's just there for the sheer physical enjoyment of of being. Mm. Which is why <coughs> we have to be careful instrumentalizing sport, making it serve something else. So to ask, what do we get out of it? What can we learn from it? Will it make us better at this, that and the other, whether it's the Christian life or management studies or whatever the, the sort of um, output might be, oh. they're secondary. Sport is for nothing. Oh. It just is. And that's its joy. And that's its joy. And that's its freedom. Yep. And that's precisely why we like it so much. And I have seen it doing... Um, a wonderful job in teaching people how to be human. I mean, in the Congo, for example, there's um, there's a wonderful rehabilitation scheme for young youngsters who've been taken off and forced to work in the militia, um, and the churches manage somehow occasionally to get them back. And of course, they've been deeply de- dehumanised mm. by what they've been forced to see and do. Um, and helping them to come together and play sport has actually been hugely significant for them because they've learned how to trust each other, how to work together, and they've learned that they can be simply for nothing. They can simply enjoy themselves and be uh, and, and be graceful creatures mm. in that sense. Mm. Um, uh, so uh, I, I, I'm not denying the usefulness of sport. I just think when it gets to be so i think we have made it not graceful i think we've made mm. it about money and competition um in and it ways does, yeah sorry Jane. no i mean it, i suppose it what that does it it does just sort of reverse things a little bit because we we sometimes think that the serious important things of our lives are work and and um those sort of necessary things and that the unnecessary things like sport or leisure or whatever else is somehow unimportant, um, optional, mm. um, you know, done in the fringes of our lives rather than at the centre. Whereas I say, I suppose when you think of the whole principle of Sabbath within um, sort of Old Testament theology and, well, maybe arguably even the New Testament theology, the Sabbath is actually the pinnacle of the week. It's not the, it's not the sort of, you know, let's have a bit of a rest so that we can go back to work again. 
as if work is the, the primary purpose. The whole primary purpose of work is that on the Sabbath we can rest from our work. We can relate to God directly. We can kind of offer that as and a sort of offering to Sit back and say it's very him. good. Exactly, yes. that's right. You know, yes. so that yes. so that, and that that does reverse things quite significantly for us in in terms of our of our um, you know very kind of slightly workaholic culture. I mean, there's a there's a book by um, Joseph Pieper, the uh, I think he's a Roman Catholic ethicist called Leisure, the the basis of culture, which I kind of like that title. You know, leisure, the basis of culture. You know, actually, mm. a good culture is built on leisure. Yes. It's not in the sidelines. It's not something just sort of optional you do in your spare time. Mm. It's actually something that's quite central to it. Um, yeah. and, and, but the, the competition thing is, is an issue, isn't it? Um, a lot of sport is competitive. That seems to be part of it. Um, that one might see as being conflictual in a way that perhaps doesn't quite reflect the peaceful nature of Sabbath mm. characterized people. Um, what do we do with that? What do we do with that kind of enigma at the heart of sport? Well, I suppose we, we question um, the way in which competitions too readily become an idol. So we don't experience... Um, uncorrupted sport or uncorrupted play we're fallen and nothing sidesteps that, that. Yeah. Um, yeah. and sport certainly doesn't but I'm an Arsenal season ticket holder and I'm sorry. I've learned um, that there's more to more to football than than winning actually there is the, you know the great thing about the great thing about Arsene Wenger is that we've seen and learned through him that Things such as beauty and truth and goodness are more valuable, and the you know soci our society and our ways are always driven by deep conceptual metaphors that we don't even realise we're working with. And one of them is that competition is somehow war, mm -hmm. um, but competition can be just as easily not easily um, it's difficult, but could be reimagined as dance. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you could. Imagine like capoeira you know, almost takes a kind of martial art and turns it into a dance form almost. Yeah, that that the, the game doesn't be have to be at the expense of someone else. Mm -hmm. You know that actually we it, compete is to do something together. It's to strive together. I I don't know what the origin of the word is, but something it's relational. You know, it's a shared activity. Mm. It's, it's not a case of the winners defeating the losers. They do they compete together in that great event, which is. It strikes me that often sports, sports events or matches are, they are a bit like going to a play. It's a drama which you you, you enter into, and the great thing about something like football is you, you enter into it as you know if you're a part of the crowd, mm. you are part of the drama. You're playing a role within it by singing and shouting and everything else, and which which actually involves you you in the thing. But it's a bit like you, you go to the play, you go to King Lear, you get thoroughly immersed in this sort of you know traumatic tale of. Of sort of the rise and fall and uh, of the king and so on, and then you come out of it uh, and you realise you you've kind of been enriched by this thing, but you're not in it anymore. And it seems to me that that's, that that sort of dynamic is quite important with sport as well. That when you know when I go to a game, I can be thoroughly immersed and be passionately supporting my team, um, but then outside, I can still talk to someone who's on the other side, and we can reflect on the game mm. in a different way. 
Although having said that, Lincoln didn't answer my call when Man United beat Arsenal earlier this season, and I rang him afterwards to I, I think he feared the fallenness of the, of the call, of the call, <laughs> the motive yeah. at that point. Right, yeah. It took well, a couple of days to yeah. come save you from yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I think the question was also asking about mentoring, and I and I do think that actually um, that that is a, a very serious point. I think a lot of the kind of um, uh, pictures of Christian mentoring have been um, inactive and. Um, uh, relational and and haven't necessarily um, helped young men, for example. Mm. Uh, and I, I think um, a church is looking for ways of actually reaching a, um, that age group of young men who are, are not instinctively uh, wanting to sit in, in pews and hold hands. Sorry, I'm caricaturing, but you know what I mean. <laughs> um, I, I think we, we could do with thinking imaginatively about how we're reaching out um, to all the people who need to hear about God. I remember reading um, about what Clive Woodward did when he took over the England rugby team and led it to uh, the World Cup triumph. When was that? About 100 years ago? <laughs> it feels like <laughs> it. Um, and the sheer professionalism uh, the, with which he approached it. Uh, they, they had you know, rug rugby coaches for the England team and he made sure that they had scrum coaches and tackling coaches and passing coaches and hand coaches and eye training mm. um, and, and a whole mass of, of things, just sheer professionalism. It did, it did challenge me to think, am I that professional about what I do, mm. um, that I take it that seriously? Mm. You know, and, and I think that is part of, I don't know about mentoring, but certainly the challenge for me of those metaphors, those biblical metaphors about mm -hmm. sport um, is, is am I giving it that much passion and professionalism? Uh, I think sport is perhaps the one thing we shouldn't take seriously. Right. That, well, uh, yep. along with ourselves, um, <laughs> that, that actually to, once it's harnessed to some other purpose, once it's professionalised, once it's politicised, mm -hmm. once we, we see... Um, say the Olympic Games becoming commercial, once we lose that amateur status, mm. then the very nature of sport as this non-instrumental, radically unnecessary, gratuitous celebration of our creaturehood is lost because it's being set to serve some other purpose, yep. either self-improvement or health or Money. finance or yep. political agendas. And, in a way that's, and that's the end of sport. That's the end of the fun of sport. But that's partly the way the metaphors work, it seems to me, is that, that it's actually saying, OK, look, people do this for sport. Actually, what, in some ways, you know, a, a, a priority in the Christian life is to put that kind of energy into, the, into, into our spiritual development, into our um, cultivation of character, as opposed to something which is a you know the wreath that fades it's almost saying that that's the you know point of sport is it's you know you, you don't you know if, if, if sports people do it for this fading glory mm. this thing that actually is not actually a lasting thing how much more do christians do this for a prize that lasts however we we must recognize also that the sport was never baptized by the church in the way that um, the wider culture was at the time so before the church came along and separated worship from sport the two just lived together. It was, you know, the games had, you know, altars and sacrifices, and and the whole thing was caught up with pagan forms of, of worship. Sport was a celebration of force and power and all all these things. And the church came along and radically said, you know, that isn't worship. Worship looks looks different to that. So it it never just sort of borrowed from from the culture and said, 
we can learn a lot from sport. It actually worked really hard to say, you know, Christian worship isn't sporting. Sport's something else. It celebrates our contingency, but it isn't a way in which we come before God and give thanks and praise. The so church you, does that differently. you don't think we should have screens up in our churches in, in evening services when there are matches on or during the Olympic Games or... I don't think we should have screens up in our churches full stop. <laughs> they tend to get in the way of those beautiful stained glass windows where you can see the communion of saints and the particularity of those gathered around Jesus. And on the whole, screens tend to present some sort of amorphous, Gnostic sacred image of some flickering lights, I find. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy to let that be the last word. <laughs> okay, well, look, we, we have to go on to our very last question for today, and um, which is a question about, um, about Mary. This is uh, from someone called Ali from Newcastle upon Tyne. We've come back a bit closer to home than Washington, D.C. Um, was that? Only a bit. <laughs> and uh, the question is um, as a Roman Catholic I don't understand why many denominations of the Christian faith hold the Holy Mother in much less exalted position than we do in the Catholic faith and uh, she says I don't want to go too far without learning the Catholic position um, but uh, I'm just interested in hearing about what the team thinks about the general position Mary holds in the non-Catholic Christian denominations so I don't know why you're looking at me, just because I'm the only woman. <laughs> I'm just looking around the table. <laughs> just happened to catch your eyes. <laughs> I mean, I've always had the sort of typical um, feminist problems about Mary, um, which is that, uh, you know, she's held up as the ideal of womanhood for doing something that no woman can possibly do, which is to remain a virgin and have a baby. Um, and And instantly, therefore, makes all other women um, second class. But if you don't do it, if you don't do that, which you don't need to, that's a sort of, uh, a, if you don't hold Mary up as, a, as the image of, of a, the perfect woman, but hold her up as the human response to Jesus, um, then I think, you, I think you can do an, a lot of really, really good theology based around Mary. Mary, the one who uh, accepts um, Jesus and allows Jesus to change her life. Mary, who, the one who doesn't understand Jesus, tries to control Jesus. Um, which again we all try to do don't we make God do what we want rather than allow God mm. to do what he wants with us Mary the one who has to be converted um, so that we see her I am always very moved by the fact that we see her at the beginning of Acts in the upper room with the disciples she's one who has come to accept Jesus as her Lord not just her son um, and so I, I actually think um, that the sort of uh, I think we've stopped paying attention to what the Gospels really say about Mary and allowed ourselves to have a, a stereotype of Mary that mm. comes from from elsewhere that I have in the past found very unhelpful and increasingly, as I rediscover Mary as the Gospels witness to her, finding her a very touching and helpful role model. Yeah, I've, there's no question of the, the the function of Mary within the life of the church as as a model of, of, of faithfulness and, 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 and love and, and all the rest of it. I suppose for many people, the questions around Mary are around particular um, innovations within the tradition around her immaculate conception and around her um, assumption into heaven. And whether the question is whether some of those doctrines and this is said with all humility before the teaching office of the church, but that, that some of those doctrines emerge 
as answers to problems that don't actually need to be fixed. So it all goes back to Jesus and Christology. So if Jesus um, has some sort of perfect, um, unfallen humanity that he assumes, then you've got to work out how, how to deliver that into the story. And that's then done to, um, through an account of Mary and her immaculate conception and her sort of sinlessness that allows some flesh to be taken by, by God, the Son. If, however, we reimagine um, the humanity that Christ takes as fallen, which is freed by the Spirit to be obedient before the Father and sort of undoes the knot and the mess we've got ourselves into and lives obediently and faithfully and, and that the battle with evil happens within his own nature and evil is first overcome in himself as God the Son is freed by the Spirit to live obediently and, and he recapitulates the steps of Adam and lives a life of obedience so that you know, all will be well. Um, then we don't need to get some delivery of some pristine, unfallen nature. Um, so uh, I suppose that's the fear yeah. a lot of people have about Mary's whether how she functions within the story of our salvation mm-hmm. and whether or not some of the work that's ascribed to her um, is a problematic within a, an account of God's gracious action in Jesus Christ. And from the perspective of my kind of angle from the problem of evil, it seems to me that the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is is problematic from that point of view because if God can step in and take away somebody's original sin, their tendency to sin, in the case of Mary, the question arises, why can't, why can't and why doesn't he do it for everybody else? Mm. Um, if, if you can do that without violating somebody's freedom, then he should be doing that all over the shop mm. and doesn't appear to. That, that's, for me, why I have problems with the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. And I guess there is a, there is a fear also that um, sometimes a lot of very exalted veneration of Mary is a result of a kind of sort of popular deceitic Christology, in other words, a Christology that doesn't really think Christ is human. Mm-hmm. And because he's not really human, we can't really identify with him. His humanity is, as Lincoln says, something slightly different from ours, or it, it's not real, it's not really our humanity. Therefore, we have to bring in Mary and, and other figures who are really human, who do, do share our frailty, yes. so that we can relate to them because we can't really relate to Jesus. Whereas it seems to me if we have a, a, a proper kind of understanding of the full humanity of, of Jesus, of Christ, then, then then actually all those things that very often within popular spirituality, you know, there's been a attempt to try to safeguard through Mary this kind of you know idea of frailty a humanity that we can recognize as sort of someone we can we can sort of approach and he's approachable all those things are actually safeguarded by a proper full Christology that, that embraces the full humanity of Christ now that isn't to say that Mary then doesn't have a, an important place in Christian devotion and and um, as Jane was saying, as a as a model of the human response to God, but it does begin to question some of the um, some of the, the the ways in which Mary has been venerated in in, yes. in the past. And I think in <clears throat> in popular way, in, in pop, at a popular level, it's often been presented that um, 
Jesus is divine. We can't relate to him. Uh, mm. Mary is this kind of smiling face uh, yeah. as opposed to the stern face of Jesus. Now, that does become dangerously mm. warped, I think. Mm. Uh, and it's not, I, mean, I know that that isn't part of Catholic doctrine mm. at all. But at a popular level, that is the impression that is sometimes given. We mm. need Mary because Jesus isn't yep. approachable. Well, yep. no, Jesus is the mediator. Yep. Uh, he is the one who's approachable. Yep. He is the one in whom you encounter God. Mm. Um, Mary is the one who points us to Jesus, responds mm. to mm. Uh, God in Christ mm. in, a, in a unique and particular but also exemplary way. I, th- I think it was that point about Christ being the mediator between us and the Father that was right at the heart of the whole Reformation critique of, of Mary. I mean, I think that you know, Calvin, for example, makes that point very strongly that you know, Christ is the one who intercedes on our behalf at the right hand of the Father. Um, that's why he said we don't need other figures to intercede for us um, because Christ occupies that, that role. And I think in some ways the, the Reformation protest against too high an exaltation of Mary was because it actually obscured the the intercession and mediation of Christ. Mm-hmm. It seemed to say that, that wasn't somehow enough. We needed yes. something beyond that. Now I think there's probably room for a, you know, not going the kind of entire direction of of sort of you know Reformation um, iconoclasm about you know the value of Mary altogether. But I I think that critique needs to be taken quite seriously mm-hmm. when we think about the theology of Mary. I do wonder. Also, if um, if there is an element of um, because we traditionally so emphasised um, and used masculine pronouns and emphasised the sort of masculinity of God, that there's there's a sort of feeling that God doesn't really understand what it's like for half the human race, <laughs> uh, which again is a dangerous misreading of the of the doctrine of the incarnation. The incarnation is 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 God becomes human. Yes. And Jesus' humanity is our common humanity, which is why anything that puts too much emphasis on the masculinity of Jesus undoes mm. the whole point of the incarnation. But if you, uh, but so you do have to keep saying that because otherwise, you know, th- there is a sense that women are, are still awaiting their incarnate saviour mm. if if Jesus' mm. humanity isn't ours mm. too. And yet that that sort of generality of, of the gospel, that the universal nature of of Christ's action is also checked by Mary, you know, that, that one of the great gifts of Mary to the church is her particularity, mm. that God the Son is born of of a mother, mm. one one mother. Not We don't all give birth to God in some sort of, you know, Gnostic myth where we're all just involved with the sacred. This mm. is a particularity, an incarnate God who is born of this particular woman. At a particular time. At a particular time, at a particular, time, a particular, in a particular place. place. Yeah. Um, and, and Mary presents us with that particularity, and and certainly, um, you know, as a seeing at close hand a, a mother at work with a baby, the thought of that level of tenderness between one person mm. and God the Son is, you know, remarkable. You know, in, in a, you know, the, the tenderness and intimacy of of the mother child mother baby particularly relationship. And, and the God. carrying, just, you know, this particular person. Yeah. Oh. And God's, you know, the willingness of God to be that vulnerable. Yeah. That the, the baby is so to, dependent. To be suckled. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You have to recognise that, of course, Lincoln is a recent father. <laughs> and knows this all from first hand. Oh. Isn't that right? That's, that's right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Very good, very good. Well, look, uh, we've, I think, reached the end of Godpod number 70. Some fascinating questions there. Thank you, Lincoln, very much for... Raising the level of debate, I think, 
today. Yes, it not, wasn't hard though. <laughs> <laughs> what you mean by that is losing listeners. <laughs> <laughs> no one's currently made it this far. They will never make it. bit of the recording. <laughs> we'll never know. Anyway, that was Good Pod number 70. Hopefully, and, we'll um, get beyond our allotted span. You never know, into our, into our dotage. <laughs> so, uh, thank you, Jane. Pleasure. And uh, Michael, thank you. Thank you also to Lincoln for joining us. Thank yes. you very much. And uh, we'll be back again for number 71 before too long. That was God Pod, a podcast from the St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.